book of Hebrews uh, in the good way, not finish it off, get, out, get rid of it. But uh, it's been my privilege to be able to preach this uh, book for the last two and a half years. It's the book I started uh, preaching when I took over uh, as pastor here. And uh, we finished all the way to the end of chapter 13 uh, last week. And it's my intention this morning uh, to do what I've always wanted to do when you get to the end of a book. Because I always find you get to the end of a book when you've preached it, and you think, oh, I could have preached that so much better if I could go back and start again. So what we're going to do this morning, we're not going to start again as in go back to 1 verse 1 and start uh, preaching it that way. But what we're going to do this morning is go through the whole of the book of Hebrews in half an hour. That's basically what we're going to do. So those readings that we had before from Psalms, if you think about it in a way, as we've gone through Hebrews, you might have noticed that in a way it's a sermon itself. Uh, commenting and, and preaching those psalms that we had read earlier. It's really a commentary uh, on those psalms. So what we're going to do this morning, uh, I'm going to preach to you the message of Hebrews. So we won't be going through verse by verse. I won't be pointing out this is verse 1, this is verse 2. But we're going to be looking at the message of Hebrews with some other illustrations added in, but keeping the idea of the whole uh, message of the book. And uh, to help us do this, I've got an uh, outline. Um, but um, what we're going to do with that, at the side, roughly what chapter we're in will appear, just so you can keep track of where we're going. Uh, but apologies if I don't quite keep up with that as we, we go through. But that's the idea, just to sort of roughly let you know uh, what we're doing uh, in Hebrews. Let me pray before we start as we uh, dig into this and, and try this. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for all the different ways that we can look at it. And Father, thank you for this wonderful message of Hebrews written to keep those Hebrew Christians going. And Father, we pray this morning it might do the same for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, something has happened. The likes of which history has never seen before. Something that has changed the very course of this world. Something that will change the life that we all live. It used to be that God would speak to us through prophets, like Moses or Joshua. He used to speak to us through angels or heavenly beings. You can see all those things uh, in the Old Testament. But now God has done something different. God has spoken to us not by his servants, but through his son, Jesus Christ. The Son who is the very radiance of God's glory. The Son who is the very image of God. The Son who has been there since the beginning. He created the world. He sustains the world. He's the heir of the world. And he came and spoke to us. God came to us and spoke to us through his Son. Who is now sat at the right hand of the Father on high. So brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this morning that we have something so much better than what we used to have. Why chase after the old and our old way of life when we have something so new and better? Because the sun is greater than even the messengers of old. Greater than uh, the angels, for example. You know, Jesus is no mere human being. He's not even the greatest man that ever lived. He's not some creation of God. He is the son, eternally begotten of the father. You see, God never said to the angels, did he, you are my son, today I've begotten you. I've put these verses on the back just if you want to uh, see them, as he does to Jesus in Psalm 2. God never says to the angels, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, as he does of Jesus in 2 Samuel 7. God never said to the angels, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, 
as he does of Jesus in Psalm 110 that we had read before. No, what does God say of the angels in the Bible? He says, no, let all God's angels worship him. And also he makes his angels winds and ministers, servants, a fire of flame. So angels are mere ministering spirits sent by God to serve us. But this has some implications, doesn't it? If we listen to the message that God gave us through his servants, the angels, the law of Moses, the commandments, the regulations, if we listen to that, how much more should we listen to the message of his son, Jesus? And if ignoring the message given by angels was punishable by death, how much more do we need to pay attention to what God has revealed to us through his son? So he was no mere human being, but he was a human being. He became a man. Or he was all that Adam should have been, all that mankind should have been. And one day everything will be subject to him. We heard that, didn't we, in Psalm 8 that we had read earlier. It tells us that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, was made a little, for a little while lower than the angels. And he did that, he became a man, he took on our flesh as we talk about at Christmas time. Maybe it's a little bit of a Christmas sermon, we'll see. Um, he did that at Christmas time, didn't he? He took on our flesh, took on our nature, so that he could become our brother. So that as we are adopted as sons, as we were hearing about before, Jesus becomes our brother. He becomes our brother, he takes on our, our nature, our flesh, so that he could suffer a death in our place as a sinless sacrifice. He was tempted, but he never sinned. He suffered, but he persevered. And that means that as we look to him, we can do that when we are suffering, when it's hard for us. We can look to him when we're tempted, because he was tempted like us. So he can act as our faithful and merciful high priest. More of that later on. I'll explain what I mean by that later on. But he's greater than the angels. And it wasn't for angels that he shed his blood. He didn't take on the nature of an angel. He took on the nature of man. He became a man and shed his blood for us. So he's even greater than those messengers, the angels. But he's even greater than the greatest messengers of the Old Testament. You see, actually, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the one that lots of people look on as the source of our faith. He wrote the first books of the Bible. Moses was great. But he was nowhere near as great as Jesus. To the point that it's not even worth comparing almost. He's greater like the one who builds a house is greater than one who serves in it. So for imagine for a second that you got yourself a job as a butler in Harewood House. You know, just down the road. You, you, got the, you, know, you get to put on all the sort of posh uniform. There'd be a certain amount of, of prestige to it, wouldn't it? You'd be sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a butler at Harewood House. Now, Butler is prestigious, but nowhere near as prestigious as the builder. Nowhere near as prestigious as the heir of the house, the, uh, the earls of Harewood who had the house built. There's a sort of different level of glory, isn't there? It sort of looks prestigious compared to everyone else. When you compare it with the one who actually is the heir of the house, who is the earl, it's not worth comparing. Jesus' glory versus Moses' glory is not comparable. Jesus built the house. He's the creator. Jesus is the heir of the house as well, the son of God. So if you think Moses and his message was great, 
then how much more should you think that Jesus is great? Um, if you think uh, the, of what Moses' people were told, well, we saw that in Psalm 95, didn't we? What they were told in, in the day. Uh, Psalm 95, 7 to 11 said this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and they had seen, uh, put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What he's saying is, actually, if you think the people of Moses' day needed to be told this, again, how much more do we need to be told this? Brothers and sisters, don't harden your hearts to God, as the people under Moses did. Because although he was great, they failed, didn't they? We have someone greater, and we should not fail either. So what have we got to do? We've got to encourage one another. Spur one another on to keep going every day. If you want a clue, if your day ends in a Y, that's a day to encourage someone. That's what it means, really. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And today, encourage one another. Why? Well, because if not, our hearts become hard. It's a bit like our hearts are like those those sort of uh, cakes you get at Christmas. You know, you, you, you get all your mince pies and everything for Christmas, don't you? And then you sort of leave it a little while. Some of them go soggy, don't they, over Christmas. But some of them go rock hard. But you know, the sort of scones that you get before Christmas. And then you sort of, can I, could I maybe cook this? You just can't quite decide what to do with it, can you? But our hearts are like those cakes. If we leave them, if we don't keep encouraging, they go hard. They go solid. So every day we need something to keep our hearts soft, to keep us going. Because look at what happened to that generation. And they had the great Moses as their leader. What happened to them? They died. They died in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land. They set off, but they never made it to the end because of their hard hearts. So don't end up with a hard heart. Don't let those around you end up with a hard heart either. Do all that you can to encourage one another to make it to the end. Do all that you can so you can enter God's rest, that glorious new creation that we're looking forward to. Because the rest that Jesus offers is greater even than the rest that uh, Joshua offered. He's greater than Moses, but he's also greater than Joshua. Joshua, you see, brought people rest in the land. They got there finally under Joshua and settled in the land, the generation after the one that had left with Moses. But that can't be the rest that God was really talking about. The day that the seventh day of creation pointed to, if you like. The big rest. Because the rest that Joshua brought didn't last. In fact, even after that rest had happened, God still talked about the possibility of going into his rest. God speaks of another day in the future where God's people will rest. So God's promises of rest were not exhausted by Joshua's rest. We have something greater. Jesus' rest. He is our Joshua. The names are the same in Greek, which makes it very difficult to translate sometimes, because if you translate Joshua into Greek, it's Jesus. 
So it says Jesus led them out of the will. It gets complicated. But Jesus is our Joshua. He brings us an even better rest. So even Joshua's rest is overshadowed by Jesus' rest. Rest that we enjoy now by faith. As we rest from our works for our relationship with God. That's what makes us right. Not our works, but our faith. We rest in that. Rest in the future as we enjoy the eternal rest in the new creation. So let's keep striving to enter that rest. Don't give in. Don't turn back. We can turn to God for help in our struggle to keep going. Because if we are trusting in him, he is now our great high priest. And he's a better high priest than any priest you can find, either in the Bible or in the world. You see, Jesus is greater than the uh, high priests of old. I should say greater. Uh, Jesus is greater than the high priests uh, of old. He's greater than the high priests. High priests were chosen from among men to act as a sort of go-between between God and man. And regular high priests could be sympathetic to our weaknesses because they have a lot of weaknesses too. So, so weak in fact that it, when they came to offer offerings to God, they had to offer offerings for themselves before they could offer offerings for us to God. Because they were weak in themselves. They were appointed by God. Even the great Aaron, the first high priest, had to be appointed by God. And so Jesus was appointed by God too. When God said to Jesus in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying there that Jesus is a priest. Jesus functioned as this go-between between God and man, even when he was here on earth. He prayed for us. He suffered like us. He was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'd like to say more about this, but it's quite hard stuff, isn't it? This isn't, doesn't sound like Christianity at 101, does it? It's hardly the basics. But there might be some here this morning who need Christianity 101. Some perhaps have even sat in churches most Sundays for most of their lives. You know what I mean? The nourishment of God's word has fallen on you week by week. But instead of producing good fruit, it's produced weeds. The cares of this life are now choking you. The scorching sun of scorn and ridicule have made you feel like giving up. But don't give up on Jesus. Why? Well, there is no plan B. We've had quite a lot of talk of plan B's on the news, haven't we? Uh, this week, you know, with Theresa May sort of saying, you know, it's this plan or no plan. And yeah, everybody said, well, this is what plan B is. But really, with Jesus, there is no plan B. If you want to be forgiven of your sin, if you want to make it to the new creation, then Jesus is the only way. So if you give up on Jesus, you give up on your only hope of forgiveness. Your only hope of making it to the end. So there is no other way. That in one sense is Christianity 101, isn't it? We need forgiveness. Lesson two, Jesus is the only way that we can be forgiven. There is no other way. And why would you want to try another way anyway? When he offers so much more than this world can offer. So much more than our old lives could offer. He offers us a relationship with God. He mediates it himself. He brings us to God. You see, he's not like the Old Testament priesthood descended from Levi. 
the Levites. He couldn't be that kind of priest because he wasn't a descendant of Levi. He was a descendant of Judah. No, actually, he's a better priest. The priest that was prophesied in Psalm 110, who was of the order of Melchizedek, would live forever. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a priest in the time of Abraham. He was a priest king who reigned in Jerusalem. And uh, he was a worshipper of the true God. So great was he, actually, that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Gave him a tithe, if you like. And the Bible says that it's almost as though the Levites, through Abraham, their grandfather, gave their tithe to him. It was almost as though they were working through Abraham. Um, Whereas most people in the Bible get a genealogy, especially in the Old Testament, Melchizedek doesn't. We're not told of his beginning. We're not told of his end. So scripturally speaking, he's an eternal figure. Without father or mother, without beginning or end. Like the Son of God, eternal and timeless. So the prophecy concerning Melchizedek and this Melchizedek figure was made after the law of Moses, after the Levitical priesthood had been set up, after all those sort of commandments and things had been done. And so if God's purposes were to be fulfilled just by that law and that priesthood, then why did God speak of another one? Does that make sense? So if, if, if it was all to do with the law, if it was all to do with Moses and the Levites, if that was enough, why would God after that time now speak of another figure that was to come? Well, actually... What he's saying here is that actually bound up in this prophecy of a forever priest is a promise of a change in the priesthood, but also then, therefore, a change in the law. It'd be a bit like if the UK got a president. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting that would be a good thing. Um, But imagine the UK got a president. Uh, You couldn't just sort of add a president into our system, could you? You'd have to sort of start from scratch again. How does it fit with the Queen? How does it fit with Parliament? How does it fit with how our constitution works. See, actually, you'd need to basically write a new constitution, wouldn't you? you need to start from scratch because just adding in a figure doesn't work. And that's what it's saying here. When this priest arrives, it means everything's going to change. The whole law has to be sort of changed to fit this figure. But the priest isn't appointed on the basis of some sort of weird legal system or legal quirk, but on the basis of an indestructible life. Jesus is clearly this forever priest because he's the living one who rose from the dead, conquering death. He's not prevented from carrying on as our priest by death, as the other ones were, because he's conquered death. So he's the only one really who can be our priest forever. And that means that our salvation is secure because it's been won by someone who's eternal who sits at the right hand of God on high. There's going to be no change of priesthood now, because it's finished. He is the final one, the eternal one. So we are secure. And as our high priest, he offers us greater access to God. You see, the old covenant was there to show us pictures of what we have in the new covenant. Now that the new covenant has come, the old is done away with. Even under the old covenant itself, God said that he would make a new covenant with his people. So Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one: Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it talks about this as being a covenant where our sins would be forgiven. A covenant where all would know God personally. 
A covenant where God's laws would be written on our very hearts. So what was the point of the old one then? Well, it was there to help us understand the new one when it came. What do I mean? Well, for example, there was the tabernacle in the temple uh, in the Old Testament. All the rites and and things associated with them were there to teach us something. They were there to show us something. So, for example, it shows us that there's only one way into the Holy of Holies, into right at the centre of the temple. The only way to approach God there is with blood. The blood of a sacrifice. Well, Christ shed his own blood. His blood was payment for all the transgressions that we made, all the the things that we did wrong under the first covenant. All the times that we broke God's rules. All the times that we didn't do what the law required. He shed his blood and he presented it in the true holy of holies, heaven itself. And his blood has bought us access to that holy of holies, that we might approach it with confidence. Not like the priests of old who could only approach God once a year after shedding copious amounts of animal blood. No, the blood has now been shed for us once for all time. He shed his blood as a sacrifice to deal with sin once and for all. And now we await his return to take us physically into the real holy of holies. As God dwells with us in the new creation. So what was the point of all those sacrifices then? Well they were there to point us to Christ's ultimate sacrifice. That's why they were there. But they also remind us of sin. The actual blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. That blood uh, couldn't really clear our conscience. It just pointed us to Christ's blood. But Christ's blood can do those things. Christ's blood can cleanse us of our sin. So let's approach God with confidence. Not in ourselves, but in the blood of Jesus. Blood which really does cleanse us. Let's not ditch Jesus or or put him on the back burner. Because actually he will keep us going. Let's think about how we can help one another keep going. Not giving up meeting together, but continuing to meet together to encourage one another. And when we meet together, let's do that. Let's encourage one another, because that's why we meet. To exhort one another, to help each other keep going. And the harder it gets, the closer to the end that we get, the more we'll need to do this. So let's make sure that none of us fall back into our old sinful way of life. Let's not profane the blood that he shed for us by living as though he never died for our sin. God is a loving God, but he's not to be trifled with. If we give up on his son, he will judge us. But I'm confident that we won't. I've seen evidences in the lives that we've lived. I know most of the people in this room. I've seen the way that you live for Jesus. I've seen in the past evidence of how you live for him. And it's not long now until he's coming back. We're closer now, aren't we, than we were when this was written. In Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4, it says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and perish, but those who have faith and are saved. So 
So what should we do in light of the greatness of Christ, in the greatness of all the things that he's brought us as our great high priest? Well, we should trust him, shouldn't we? We should have faith. More than that, faith, hope, and love. Those are the three huge applications of what we've read about the greatness of Jesus. The first is to have faith in him. That was really what chapter 11 is all about. What is faith? Well, faith is being persuaded by the promises of God and assured of the unseen truths that he has. Faith is what the people of old were commended for. Not their animal sacrifices, not their keeping of the law, but their faith in God. So like Abel, he offered a sacrifice, yeah, but he was commended for his faith. He offered that sacrifice by faith. Like Enoch, who walked with God and himself was unseen, if you like, because God took him. Like Noah, who built an ark for an unseen flood. He trusted God and was rescued. Like Abraham, who trusted God when God told him to go to a place that he couldn't see. He and his family lived there like nomads, like strangers, like exiles. Because they were looking for the city that God would give them. The city of God, the God, the city that God has prepared for them. Abraham trusted God when he asked him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham believed God could raise the dead, even though he'd never seen it. He was so sure of the promises of God, he was prepared to go through it. Struck through with it. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all shared this faith too. Faith like Moses, who shunned the treasures of Egypt. Because he could see, uh, that he could see, if you like, in it with his eyes, for far greater treasures with Christ. He chose to suffer with God's people and be saved, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures Egypt had to offer. There are others, of course, I'm not going to go all the, through all the ones in Hebrews 11. But these are just examples of faith that perseveres, persuaded by the promises, assured of the unseen. And you know what? Hebrews tells us that we're actually in a better position than they were. They looked forward to the coming of Jesus, the anointed one, but they never saw it. We have Jesus. We we can look back at what happened now and we complete these people of faith. The Bible says that without us, they're incomplete. We sort of fill up their number. So we're in a better position than even they were. So let's trust God, not just for now, but for the future too. Chapter 12 is all about hope. Hope looks forward. So faith, if you like, is trusting God's promises for today. Hope is trusting God's promises for tomorrow. What lies ahead? Well, what lies ahead? The finish line. Brothers, we have all these examples of people who have run the race of faith before us. They're witnesses to the life of faith. They show us that it's possible to do it. So let's throw off everything that will stop us making it to the finish line. Cast off sins and distractions. And let's run looking to Jesus. The one who started the race. And the first one to ace the race. The only one to ace the race. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Don't let hard times that you're experiencing knock you off track. Jesus experienced suffering too. How did he get through it? He got through it by looking to what lies ahead, through his hope, to the joy set before him in glory. 
And we need to do the same. And if we're having a hard time, it doesn't mean that God has rejected us. Actually, God disciplines the sons that he loves. He allows hardship to happen to them, to train them, to make them more like his son, the Lord Jesus. So get up, get running, you can do it. Look out for one another in the race. How could we help one another finish the race? And we're so close to the end. We're already part of that great gathering, not around Mount Sinai, with its thunderbolts and lightning, very frightening, but around Mount Zion, the city of Abraham, that Abraham was looking for, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're gathered with millions upon millions of angels in celebration. We're united with all believers across the world. We're united with all believers through history, and God himself is with us. So don't close your ears to God. Instead, worship him as you live lives overflowing with thankfulness and love. That's what the last chapter is all about. Love one another. Love the stranger. Love your brother. Love the prisoner. Love the outcast. Love one another properly in marriage. Love God, not money. Love the leaders of the past by emulating them. Copying them. Love the leaders of the present. Make serving uh, you a joy to them. Pray for them as they pray for you. Encourage one another. Just like hopefully this sermon will have encouraged you. It's one of the ways we encourage one another. Now encourage each other with the word of God as well. And if you think it sounds difficult, well, God will equip us to do his will. That's what we're told. So brothers and sisters, something huge has happened. Something that has changed history itself. Is it changing you? Are you letting the Spirit speak to you through his word? Or are you hardening your hearts to him? Something huge has happened. God has spoken through his son. Are you listening to him? Don't turn your back on him. Instead, have that faith that perseveres. Have that hope that looks to the joy set before us. And have love for one another. Jesus is greater than all this world. Anything this world can offer. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would heed the message of Hebrews. Father, help us to see just how much greater Christ is than anything that this world can offer. Father, help us to have that faith, hope and love. And help that to be overflowing uh, to one another, Father, as we love one another. Father, keep us hoping as we face difficult times. And Father, keep our faith in you strong. For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.